Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. One quick note is that we're actually doing all of chapter 24, not just the end of it. So hear the word of the Lord. Not all of this will be in your bulletin. Chapter 24 of Matthew. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the, the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered him, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are, are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak and alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your, your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath for then there will be great tribulation for such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short no human being would be saved but for the sake of the elect those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and perform great signs and wonders as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they will say to you, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. For also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. 
For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night that the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your words, your words that breathe life into us, your people. I pray that these words would breathe life into us this morning, that stir our hearts towards love, towards mercy, towards grace, towards you, and towards each other. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. You know, as a young child, the first war that I remember growing up was the, the Gulf War. And we would sit and we'd watch the nightly news and they would show, uh, you know, these tracer rounds that would light up the sky as they were shooting back and forth. I remember people from our church that fought in that war and never came back. And as, as people wrestled with the realities of war, trying to make sense of it, uh, trying to figure out why is this happening, I heard many people tell me, well, this means Jesus is coming back soon. So surely if the world is at war, that means Jesus is going to come back real soon. So just be ready. He's coming. But he didn't. Fast forward to modern day troubles in the Middle East, constantly. Russia invading Ukraine, seemingly unending wars around the world. Again, I hear many people say, oh, this means the end is near. Jesus is coming back tomorrow, the next day for sure. And yet he has not come back yet. And then, you know, I've heard rumors of the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. I hear it said again, ah, this is it. When that, when that temple gets rebuilt in Jerusalem, then that's going to make Jesus come back. And he's going to kind of reign on earth and, and do his thing. But he's not. Uh, you know, often when we think about the end of days, the eschatology, the study of the end times, the eschaton, I think there tend to be two different ditches that we fall into. Some of you may be consumed by thoughts of it, not in hopeful reflection, but more out of desperation. Like it becomes a way to escape the problems of today. And so with every global event, you, you think, oh, it's happening. It's today. Um, and you get and you consume all sorts of weird books and they all have really bad cover art. You know, what's funny is I don't know why this is, but even like the good books on the end times all have really bad cover art. So there's probably a market there if someone wants to make some money. Um, but it becomes an obsession, obsession as escapism for us. And then, you know, on the other side of the, the, the ditch is the people that could care less about it. You never think about it at all. You're, you're apathetic or agnostic about eschatology. You see it as a, as a waste of time. You can't be sure about what's going to happen, so why waste any ener energy on it? I've heard this position called the, the pantheistic, uh, you know, uh, pan-millennial position that, uh, you know, it's all going to pan out in the end. And it's an endeavor of the, the unknown. And I, I think the, the root of both the, the apathy that surrounds these days and the idolatry of our interest in the end of days is actually the same. 
And it's this, that we don't know how to deal with suffering. We don't know how to deal with suffering, with darkness, with tribulation. We, we don't know how to be people who wait through those things well. And in, in an effort to end the darkness and, and the tribulation we experience in life as quickly as possible, we find ways to numb the pains of waiting and suffering. For some of us, it's through obsession. For others, it's an apathy, pretending it isn't real. But darkness and tribulation isn't something that you can just escape from in this life. It's part of our daily living. You will experience darkness. And it's because of this that it is no surprise that in this season of Advent, right, the longing for the Savior to come and make things right, the season of Advent begins in the dark. It's in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of apocalypse, comes the cry, come Lord Jesus. And the season of Advent isn't mere optimism, ignoring hardships, but it actually sees the darkness in this Fleming Rutledge points out, has a hope beyond history with its cycles of optimism and despair, has a hope found in the incarnate God. And so with the beginning of this Advent season, a season where we train ourselves to be people who wait well, to be a people who are faithful, to be a people who are wise, we begin with the beautiful vision of the eschaton, the end of times. And so as we dive into these divine mysteries, we're going to be using you know, one of the more challenging New Testament passages. We're going, to, we're going to dive into this text by just using three simple questions. And these are actually the questions that the disciples ask that set up Jesus' response here. And it's simply this. When is uh, the age going to come? When is the new age going to come? And what are the signs of this? And what does it look like for us to be people who are ready? So first, uh, the first question is, when is Jesus coming about to bring the end of the age? When is Jesus coming back to, to bring the end of the age? And as we you know, have asked this question, we have to understand the context of what's happening here. And there's, there's two aspects to someone coming. You know, when we talk about the end of the age and Jesus coming here in Matthew 24, the question is, are we speaking about this, his second coming Right, his, his coming back, consummating the kingdom and, and ushering in eternity for us? Or is it something that he's already happened in history? And this is actually usually where interpretations of passages like Matthew 24 get really wonky for us. So let's dive in. Verse 1 kind of helps set this up for us. It says, then the kingdom of heaven. Uh, nope, wrong, wrong page. Here we go. Uh, it says this. Uh, Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the building of the temple, and he answered them, you see all these things, do you not truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So to give some even greater context, this is happening the last week of Jesus' life, right? He'd just come into the, into the city, he'd walked into the temple, he had just, you know, judged it in, in chapter 23, which I recommend reading later this afternoon. It's kind of an indictment on the temple. And... Uh, and uh, as he's doing this, he's, he's just preaching, preaching against the Pharisees and the temple in Jerusalem for all its wickedness. He's, he's saying, I'm predicting that Jerusalem and the temple uh, are going to fall down. So this is the context for, for what he's talking about here. And then the disciples, after he said all these things, come to him and say this in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So this whole section is set up by these disciples asking him about what he has been talking about in chapter 23. When is this stuff going to happen? What is a sign that it's going to happen? 
And when will you come and do this? How are we going to know? And, uh, and, you know, when you think about the, the word coming, the, the, the word coming here in, in Greek is prusia. And it's a word that refers to the rival of a king who has been absent. So the prusia of Christ, the king, has come. Right? He, he has come. He has actually inspected the temple and he has found it defiled. And so he condemns it to destruction. And so what you find here is the immediate context of Matthew 24 is, is not about the second coming of Christ at all. It's, it's asking, when is Jesus going to come back and judge uh, Jerusalem and, and destroy the, the, the temple? When is he going to do these things that he says he was going to do in chapter 23? And they're wondering, when is this judgment going to come? When will the temple fall and when will you establish your kingdom? When will the age, when will the age of the temple end and the age of this new covenant begin? This is what they are asking. And what this shows us is that the events that they are asking about here and that Jesus prophesies about are actually events that have already happened in history. And we see this as Jesus actually begins to answer these questions, and he begins to answer them by actually telling them when he's not coming back. In verse 6, you begin to see this, and you will hear wars and rumors of wars, and see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. So these things are going to happen. There's wars and rumors of war. You're going to find people falling away and false teachers. And yet it is not the end. It's a sign of the end. Nation against nations, famines and, and earthquakes, yet not yet. It's just the beginning of birth pains. Tribulations will come. Hard times will come. Yet that isn't when I'm coming back to render judgment and usher in a, a new age. And think about all that happened to the disciples, right? Judas betrayed them. Jesus was crucified. And yet the end was not yet. And they were imprisoned, they were persecuted, put to, put to death, and yet the end was not yet. It's this thing, don't panic. Suffering is not a sign of defeat, it's the beginning of birthing pains. They're gonna be tempted to think each of these moments that happen to them is the end, but he's telling them, he's preparing them, this is not the end. So when is it gonna happen? Well, verse 14 tells us uh, this, that, and in, in this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when is it going to happen? Well, once the gospel is preached to the world. Now you might think, well, Craig, I got you here, because that hasn't happened yet. So how can this be talking about events that have already happened? Well, you know, as different theologians help point out, one particular R.C. Sproul is great on this point, that that. Uh, in this passage like this, world doesn't always mean every person in the world. You know, in Colossians, Paul writes these words. He says, the word of, of the truth of the gospel has come to you as it has also in all the world. So what did Paul mean by world when he wrote that? He wasn't talking about every corner of the world. He was talking about the known world. Because Colossians was written in 62 AD before the fall of the temple in 70 AD. And so that which is when the judgment against Israel happened. And so Jesus is telling them, listen, this judgment will happen after the gospel is preached to the known world. And Paul tells us that this prophecy was actually fulfilled, as Jesus said it would be. Right? The, the second thing we learn about the when is that this is going to happen in, in their generation. You know, verse uh, 34 tells us this, that uh, truly I say to you that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And actually, in chapter 23, he also says this to, to them when he's giving this judgment. In chapter 23, verse 36, he says, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And so 
Jesus had this generation in mind when he's kind of given us these prophecies, not some future generation. This was a near prophecy spoken against the people and the nation of Israel to Jerusalem, to its temple. And so Jesus is telling them, listen, this is gonna happen soon, but not when you experience hardship. Hardship is a sign of the beginning, not the end. So now we turn to the, to the second half of the disciples' question. Well, what are the signs of that day? If not wars and tribulations, then, then what? So what, are this, what is the sign of the age to come? What are they supposed to be looking for? How will we know when it happens? Well, verse 15 begins to answer this question for us. It says this, that when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So he's talking about this time is the abomination of desolation. Well, what the heck is the abomination of desolation? Well, he tells us, he gives us a reference here. He's referencing Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7, chapter 9 and 11, it speaks of, chapter 7 of Daniel speaks of the enthroned Messiah, this, this enthroned king. And then chapter 9 and 11 speak of, of, uh, of, of Daniel, speak of the Messiah, the king who comes and uh, brings about desolation to the temple because of the abomination that's happening there, the, the evil that's happening in the temple. So the sign that they're to look for is actually the destruction of the temple. And, you know, verse 38 of chapter 23 also calls this. It says, see your house is left, left to you desolate. And so there's this picture that the, that the temple of God has become this desolate place, a place that was meant to give life to the nations, a place that was meant to proclaim the kingdom of God in the world has become defunct, right? It's become, as Jesus calls it, a den of thieves, a place that murders its own prophets. And one of the, the signs of the end of the age is the destruction of the temple, a destruction that happened in 70 AD. So to judge the nation and its rules for the wickedness. And Jesus tells them, listen, when that happens, when Rome comes and sacks Jerusalem and destroys the temple, it's gonna be hard for you. And he has this whole section of you should run. He said the tribulation spoken of in this section is not some future tribulation, but it's, it's the coming, the one that comes at the destruction and judgment against Jerusalem and its leaders. We see this here at the very end, verse 20, it says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. There's likely a reference to Rome in Jerusalem. Rome is coming to devour the corpse that is being judged. Rome is the instrument of judgment. Right? The fall of Jerusalem was rough. If you read historical accounts of the, the, the day and, and what happened in the city, it wasn't a time that you wanted to be in the city. The temple was desecrated and destroyed. People were being killed, murdered in the streets. So we see this judgment against Jerusalem further. Actually, in verse 29, it says this, that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So this is not talking about something that's physically gonna happen in the skies. It's not talking about like eclipses and those kind of things. But whenever you see symbolism like this in scripture, you need to look and see well, where, where else does scripture use these, this type of language. And in the Old Testament, falling stars and darkening lights in the heavens are also are, are, uh, references to when nations are being judged. One instance of this is in Isaiah 13. It says this, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark as it's rising and the moon will not shed its light. 
So what he's saying here is Jerusalem has become like Babylon and now they're being judged just like Isaiah was referencing the judgment towards Babylon. Right? Their light is, is being snuffed out. Their corpse is being devoured. And this is one of the signs that the old age is passing. Right? The age of the temple and its worship is over. Something new is coming. The, the fall of the temple is a sign of the death of the old age. Which leads to the, to the second sign of the, the coming kingdom which is a sign of the new age that is coming, which we begin to see here in verse 30. And it says this, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So what is the, the sign of the Son of Man? Well, it's Jesus taking his throne, which you might say, well, Craig, that hasn't happened yet. He hasn't come in that manner yet. But I would say, well, hasn't he? In the ascension of Christ, what happens? He goes and he sits on his throne. But you may protest, well, that isn't really him coming, that's him going. But what we find here is that it's in the ascension, his going actually is his coming. Because where does he go? He goes up to heaven. He, up on a cloud, Acts 1 tells us, sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling. What is he doing? He's bringing his kingdom down on earth as it is in heaven, sending his Holy Spirit to enliven, enliven the hearts of his people. He has come into our hearts his going is his coming. The ascension is the sign of this new age that has come. Right? It's the completion of his work on earth, that Jesus has, has been enthroned, that he is sitting on his throne. The end of days has come and gone. A new kingdom has been ushered in. Right? The fall of the temple and the ushering in of a, of a new age happened like a trumpet call, which begins the mission of the church. And what is the mission of the church to do? To, to call the elect from all the corners of the earth. Right, and the word here for angels doesn't necessarily mean heavenly angels, but it's a word that means messengers. And now with the ascension and enthronement of Christ, his disciples are made the messengers. They're sent forth to the four corners with the gospel. And this we see beginning in the, in the Great Commission that happens at the end of this, in this book of Matthew and in the Pentecost moment. We get this picture that, that a new age has dawned, the age of the church, the moment of the temple the moment the temple is destroyed, we find the old covenant age officially done. Only Christ on his throne and his church, which is eternal last. And now Jesus is ruling over his people, his people which have been made into a temple, living stones of the eternal temple of the new age. The new age has come. So you might wonder, well, how does this help us with our original quest to think about the future end of days? Uh, if this has already happened in the past, then what, what good is this for us? Well, just because this prophecy that's been spoken of has, has actually already been fulfilled in real time and place, it doesn't mean it doesn't have much to teach us about the second coming of Christ, which we still are waiting for, which we're in a present advent for. Now, Peter Lightheart points out that when God dismantles a world and forms a new one, that we can expect the, the same patterns that you find here. In Matthew 24, wars and rumors of war, false prophets, tribulation, persecution. And this turmoil is not a sign of the end, but it's a sign of a new beginning. A sign of the new world being built and born. Right? The new age has, has dawned, but it's not yet consummated. Right? And, the, and the Advent refrain that the kingdom of God is now and not yet. And looking at moments like the, the first coming of Christ helped to strengthen us in our current season of, of waiting. And so as we too are a people of waiting, we aren't waiting for the fall of the temple. 
but for the earthly return of our king. So what does it mean to be ready for his return? What does it mean to advent well? We begin the answer to that question here in verse 36, but it says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. Right, concerning this coming day, nobody knows. We don't know when it's gonna happen, just like they didn't know exactly, neither do we. And then he tells us what it's gonna be like. He says this, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the, those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So he's saying it'll be like Noah in the flood, where there'll be some unaware carrying on like, like nothing was going to happen. They're going to get swept away. And then we get an, another analogy in verse 40 of these two people working side by side. And one is taken away and one's left behind. I, many, many times this is used to speak of the rapture, which we actually don't believe is, is going to happen. I don't think the Bible teaches that here in the context of Noah you know, we don't want to be the one that's taken away because the ones that were taken away in the time of Noah are the ones that were swept up in the flood and drowned and died. We don't want to be that person. We want to be the people that are actually left behind. And the point of these stories is, is that, uh, of these stories is that it will happen when you don't expect it. That whether you're apathetic to it happening or waiting patiently for it happening, it will happen in a moment you, you can't expect it, so be ready. Verse 42 says, says this, he says, therefore stay awake. If you do not know the day or hour. So what does it mean for us to actually be ready? What, is it, what does it mean for us to stay awake? How can we be ready for something that's going to happen when we're told we can't expect it to happen? It seems kind of backwards to us, right? I think, uh, so, so what are we supposed to do? Well, we begin to get the answer here in the part that I didn't read yet, but I'm going to read it now. In verse 45 to 46, it says this. Well, in verse 44, let me back up. It says this, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is faithful in, in the wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. So here, we actually are told what it means to, to, to wait well, what it means to be blessed when his master comes. It says, the one who is ready is the one who is faithful and wise. And you know, uh, in chapter 25, I'm going to briefly touch on it in summary form, that he begins to give us two parables that actually give us visions for what it means to be faithful and wise. The first parable you see in, in chapter 25 is a parable of the ten virgins. And these, these ten virgins, uh, the, in, in this parable, the wise are those who are prepared to last the night, and they're waiting for the bridegroom. They brought enough oil to last in their lights. And so as we consider that story, let me ask you a question. What if I told you that we were still in the early days of the church? What if I told you that, that one day in church history, they would look back on us like we are the early church? How would that change the way you live your life? How would that change the way you invest your resources? This is actually how we're called to live. This is wisdom. Wisdom teaches you to be ready to see beyond your current circumstances, to not be overly swayed by headlines, by the rise and fall of politicians, by war and famine. Not that we don't engage in the world in these things, but wisdom gives us an eternal vision, the long road ahead, that these things aren't the sign of the end, but the sign of the beginning. And so we engage the world with hope that the new age is coming despite what happens in our timeline, despite losses. 
question is, is your hope in, in the kingdom that is to come? Or do you rise and fall with newspaper headlines? The, f- the following parable gives us the measure of faithfulness. And it's the parable of the talents where people are given certain talents and some invest and some don't. And the, f- the faithful one is the one who invests what they've been given. They don't hide it or stuff it under a mattress for fear, but they invest whatever talents they have. So the question for us is, where are you fearful? Where are you hiding for the fear of the times? Just like in, in this day, there, there were wars and rumors of war. There's false prophets, and we're called to be faithful kingdom investors despite what we see or don't see. So in this faithfulness is the ability to live wisely in the world, to not give up. You know, the great Wendell Berry author uh, and poet once wrote that he hopes that when Jesus comes back that he's found gardening. And I think this is a great picture of just wisdom and faithfulness to be investing and working in this world because the world is not ending despite what you read. It's just beginning. There will be turmoil. There will be tribulation. But this is not the end. It's the beginning of a new day. So wisdom sees what is true and faithfulness gives us strength to walk in those truths regardless of what circumstances come our way. And Advent helps teach us that that God's moving in this world sometimes looks like death. Like it did for Jesus, who had to die before he could rise. Like it did for the early church, who had to be persecuted to grow. It looks like the end, but it isn't. It's the beginning of birth pains that bring about resurrection life under the headship of our ascended Lord and King. And in Christ the King, we have a share in those pains because the Spirit of Christ lives inside of us, birthing the new world through his church. May we be a people who learn to live faithful and wise lives, living with confidence in this world, waiting and suffering, waiting and suffering well until Jesus the King comes to make all things new. Pray with me. Merciful God in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, for your love and your care for us, your people. You encourage us and strengthen us, even in cloudy days, even in dark times. May we see past these moments to know that you are birthing a new world. May we maybe wait with hope. May we wait with faithfulness and wisdom, not to overreact to the things of this world, but to live faithfully in it, sowing the seeds of your kingdom until you come, until you return. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.